The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Prices at China's factory gates fall for the second straight month and consumer inflation slows on weak demand while Asian stocks take heart from Beijing's easing of COVID curbs. Well, the S&P snaps a five-day losing streak and part of the yield curve sees its deepest inversion since 2001 as investors keep an eye on producer price data for clues into the Fed's rate-hiking path. Elsewhere, it's a game over for Microsoft's Activision takeover, or is it? U.S. regulators sue to block the $75 billion acquisition over concerns it would harm competition in the gaming space. And talking of gaming space, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is warned he could be subpoenaed to Capitol Hill next week as the SEC calls on public companies to disclose their crypto exposure amid fears of further contagion. Glad to say goodbye and have a good holiday. I I didn't get a text from the airport, but I assume that she safely got on the plane. She's too busy drinking champagne, wasn't she? uh, One would hope so. One would hope so. You know, there's so much to discuss in our headlines as well. I mean, it gets me thinking straight away, and I think that's the mark of how beautifully written they are today. Mm. I mean, the regulators are all worried about crypto um, contagion. And yet, I think there's a lot of other stuff out there they should be more worried about than crypto contagion. But anyway, yeah. that's another issue. No, no, I think it's fascinating. This, this idea as well that you now have to disclose cryptocurrency really? exposure and risks really? at this stage when, the, when ultimately the regulators have tried not to take too much notice because they just don't want to be involved in the story and they don't want to be seen to be complicit in any losses that consumers may have. This is nonsense in many ways. The exposure of the major financial institutions globally Mm. as a percentage of assets to crypto, it's going to be, get this word right, infinitesimally small. Mm. It's going to be tiny. Mm. What regulators should really be worried about is their exposure to non-public markets. What they should be really worried about is if they've missold products with an A rating or a B rating when actually it's junk ratings Mm. uh, and they've packaged stuff off again in CFOs or whatever these new um, uh, collateralised fund obligations are as well. What they Mm. should be really worried about is their exposure to REITs Mm. that actually are gating investors as well. Not crypto. Maybe crypto, but there's a lot of other things there as well I'd like to see the exposure of. Absolutely. Um, David Newhouse is going to be up, so we're going to get into this with him because hopefully he'll have some some pithy remarks. But I I think two things that are becoming very obvious as interest rates rise is we need to worry about duration mismatch and we need to worry about liquidity mismatch. And when you've got products in a portfolio that cannot be sold quickly to raise liquidity, then you need to think very hard about what your strategy is going to be if we have a hard recession And if anything, didn't that LDI thing on the UK gilt market show us that it's in the plumbing we always have to worry? It's the plumbing. And and I think uh, Gillian Tett's picking up the baton from you and others as well today in the FT talking uh, about we need to know about what's going on in the multi-trillion dollar swap market, for instance. It's very often in the plumbing of these markets 
than actually the crisis is, rather than something that's clear and present in everyone's eyes. Oh gosh, crypto, some people are losing their money on crypto. Well, as yeah. I say, most people are losing money on crypto. They deserve to lose it because they haven't got a clue. Uh, so, so we're agreed, really. The world owes the UK it's thanks for <laughs> the early warning system that the, the LDI, LDI represented. It's hey, like, wake up, everybody, well, start looking around at where the, the risks lie. Did you see lie. that story I sent you yesterday about a council? I know you saw yeah. it because you sent me back a, yeah. an image of an insect. Um, yes. But about a, <laughs> which we won't mention which Well, no, one. it's a cockroach. A cockroach. It's a, because <laughs> it's Warren Buffett who always said, you know, you never see one cockroach when you lift a paving slab. Yeah. Yeah. Or words to that effect. Yeah, I mean, basically what I was saying to you is, because yeah, we were talking on telly, we on were. TV. Yeah. Only in the last couple of days about UK councils have got themselves into dodgy situations because they've taken on deals with um, with uh, financial engineering or financial experts, which yeah. they don't really understand because they've tried to boost their income uh, and lessen their liabilities. Uh, and actually, another UK council, I think in this case it was Warrington, might yeah. have got themselves into a pickle again. Oh dear. Well, well, we've got a TV show to do for three hours, so wow. we'll hold the chat for a moment. Uh, let's pick up on the latest Chinese data then. The yuan is near a three-month high against the dollar as traders appear to look past China's weaker economic performance in November. Factory gate prices came in 1.3% lower on the year last month, while the consumer price index rose by 1.6%. Now that's down on October's 2.1% uptick and comes amid surging COVID cases and dismal trade data released on Wednesday. But Asian equities have rallied on the week's COVID policy shift. Here's a look at how we are trading this hour on the Asian markets as they run into their afternoon session. Well, investors will be focusing on the November producer price index out of the US today, which is expected to show manufacturing inflation eased further last month. It is one of the final pieces of data that Fed policymakers will see before their central bank meeting next week and comes after possible signs the labour market is cooling, with continuing weekly jobless claims climbing to their highest level since early February. Can I, um, just between me and you. I'm yeah, go on. Can I apologise for a couple of things? I've done a couple of bad things in the last Have 12 you? hours or so. Does your wife know about this? <laughs> okay. Well, only one of them. Oh, right. Only okay. one of them. I haven't told her the other one yet. All right. We'll save that for a Christmas no, no, surprise. I might, I might as well just yeah. tell you and, yeah, if anyone's, mm. but just between you and I. Why yeah. I did something bad? I, I, went, I went to the petrol station morning and bought a load of chocolate for the yes. team. So we've already eaten a load of chocolate by six o'clock and we all feel sick already, yeah? Yeah. So that's a bad thing. Yeah, I should have bought yeah. them kind of, you know, fruit or something. I had more pieces of that mini flapjack than I should yeah. have done, I think. So, yeah. I, so I've made us all feel a little bit sick. The second thing I've done, which I, I promised not to do, <laughs> and I, I've got to hold my hands up. Yeah. I watched a bit of Harry and Meghan Netflix. Right, okay. Uh, and how did you find it? I thought you weren't the I know, Harry and Meghan type. I know, and I promised yeah. I wasn't, but, but the wife was watching it on telly. She had a fire and the dog was on top of it, and, she, and I couldn't get to the control, and so I did watch oh, a bit of okay. it. okay. She, she wrestled it from your hands no, and no, I don't made get, you sit down. You know I don't. But, but my point about it is, and I'll yeah. do this in relation to PPI. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is interesting. To the well, tune of. To the tune of the PPI. No, because yeah. you mentioned the producer price stuff as well, and I kind of, it's a bit like the Harry and Meghan documentary. It's mildly interesting, but it ain't going to change your life. You know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, OK, I'm really interested in what the PPI is going to do today. But so what? I mean, yeah, Harry and Meghan, it was interesting to see how they were going to approach this documentary. But it doesn't change anything. We have a little look at their lives and we move on, don't we? As opposed to next week, which 
I think from the top down, yeah, I think the PPI is interesting. I thought the initial jobless claims were interesting. I think there's a lot of mildly interesting stuff out there as well. But none of it's going to change my life. But what will potentially change my life or your life and the destiny of these markets is without doubt the FOMC and the CPI next week. Because you're going to get three reactions, obviously, up, down or unch on the back of it. But whatever happens, you will either get a confirmation or, or, or questions raised about the uh, the trajectory, the destination, the, the, the travel in terms of how the FOMC sees the inflationary threat versus recession and how the actual data is manifesting itself, i.e. is the CPI going to say we're, we're under control on the inflation front or actually is it going to be a blowout figure and it's just going to ruin every hope of a rally because there was a tiny rally yesterday these were just a tiny rally compared to the drubbing the markets have had the last week or so five days in a row the s p was down and now it's up 0.8 of one percent but for the week so far before this final session down 2.7 percent the nasdaq down 3.3 percent as well let's take a quick look at where the treasuries are trading as well uh, we've got a 3.4 handle now on the 10-year as well so the market thinks Hang on a second. We have got inflation under control. We have got a situation where perhaps the dollar's peaked. And Jeff and I went down this meandering path before the show talking about EM and EM debt in 2023. And the whole premise from the piece we looked at on the IIF was, hang on, the dollar rally has passed. The dollar peak has passed. That may be the case. But when everyone thinks it, it's the top of the bell curve distribution. It's the herd view. That will worry me and worries this show because we're here to give you alternatives. Let's take a look at dollar crosses very quickly. Again, this is just confirming that, isn't it? 105.74, parity on euro dollar, forget it. 122.60 on sterling as well. The, the yen, massive, massive rally off its nearly 150 high or low versus the dollar and the 150 high. Dollar yuan trading 6.96 as well. WTI and Brent, let's have a look at this. Reopening in China, no reopening in China, hasn't made a jot. The fact of the matter is, the market is selling this down. That is a pathetic rally compared to where we've been. Do you want to see what I'm saying? Have a look at the week today. This is fascinating. Look at that. This is the week when the Chinese have done something absolutely enormous that we all had questions about. Would they pivot on their zero COVID policy? The answer appears to be yes, yes, yes in Hong Kong and the mainland. And look at this. On that week, would you have forecast Brent to fall 12%? And I know a man who's pretty much bullish on commodities and underlying. And I'm going to ask him in a few moments time all about it. Good morning, David. Right. So let's take a look at Asia and Asian markets. They're trading like this. So we have a solid rally on the Hang Seng, a decent rally elsewhere. Shanghai Composite up 0.2 of 1%. But so many questions. I think we need two chats with the next lad. Yeah, I think so. Uh, David Newhouser joins us, CIO of Livermore. I just want to pop up the S&P. Morning, David. Just, just, to, just to dwell on the S&P for a moment here because um, it, it's been a rough uh, few sessions here. Uh, but the S&P finally managed to put in a positive close yesterday. Um, very interesting um, column on uh, breaking views, I think it was, talking about the median analyst call for the S&P for end of 2022. 4,910. 4,910 was the median wow. call. Obviously now we're 17% down for the year and, and, and that looks nothing like 4,910 here. So hopefully the, the forecasting community are going to get their calls better for full year 2023. But David, where, where do you think we're going to be 
towards the end of 2023. How apocalyptic or otherwise is your view of both the US economy and what may happen in markets? Yeah, so that's a great question, uh, Jeff. I mean, I, I think one thing you described, like you said, is you look back a year ago from where we were to where we are today, mm. it's a much different dynamic. Uh, it's a much different market than it has been. And for the most part, like you said, a lot of analysts and global uh, macro uh, investors have, have got it wrong. They thought sort of the, the move was going to be still up and to the right mm. uh, as low interest rates, negative interest rates were still in the system. Uh, coming into COVID reopenings, that was the big sort of trade you saw for the past year or so. And all that was essentially, if you look back, was been baked in. Uh, and of course, now we've seen a whole different shift in dynamic uh, to where we are today, which is a much uh, different outlook. And I think when you go into 2023, it's going to still be, you know, very perilous in terms of where you see global growth, where you see earnings, where you see the economy. And there's just, you know, like great uncertainty, I think, as you go into 2023. Now, the, the interesting part is, as you said, a year ago, everyone's forecasting, you know, S&P 500 to get to somewhere around 500, you know, earnings to be $235 a share or more. Mm. And this growth is just keep accelerating for, you know, as far as the eye can see. And now you're, you're starting to see that investment banks on Wall Street have adjusted that and they're looking at more like $205, $210 in earnings. So you look at that and you look at a multiple of what you should put on that in the current environment. And I think a lot of people still see somewhere around 400 or 410 maybe on the S&P, somewhere where we're at today, right around which is of course the moving averages. But I mean, there's also others on, on Wall Street uh, and I'd be more in their camp. Whereas you look into 2023, you look at history, uh, you look at valuation, uh, more than likely you're going to see earnings come down even more. Uh, you're going to see growth slow further. You're going to see uh, rates continue to be on an uptrend and uh, you're going to consistently see multiples start to compress. How, how does Livermore position into that? Yeah, so that's a, another very good question. We've been positioning early in the cycle, I mean, saying more like the last year or two, as, as every time we talk, very negative, uh, viewed tech as a bubble viewed asset prices as a bubble. Uh, some of the biggest companies in the world looked extremely frothy. Uh, I think that's been proven. So some of the things at that time we were looking at putting on short exposure, things like you know, fa uh, Facebook, which is Meta, you know, Tesla, um, ARK Investments, all these things that you see people were gravitating to, looking for a return. And then all of a sudden now we're getting that U-turn, those shares are down you know, 30, 50, 60, 70% in the past 24 months. So where are you today and how do you position today for the next 24 months? I think personally it's going to be really uh, challenging, really difficult. Um, I think Steve uh, mentioned on the board, I mean one of the things Livermore has been focused on of course has been commodities, mm. has been sort of hard asset plays. As interest rates rise, um, as demand stays relatively buoyant and as uh, global growth even slows, Supply is still very tight, um, and I think unfor you know, some of those um, benchmark prices like Brent, like Copper, and others, you know, those are still going to be very good for earnings for those companies. So we're so still heavy investors in that. Let me go straight to, back to them, because I know what you're saying. And by the way, I think some of your calls have been great over the last couple of years, and you've obviously mm. nailed some of this. But mm. you're being challenged quite 
strenuously by the market on your energy call at the moment. And like a lot of people, you've seen, you see higher energy prices. Now, I presume you're positioned for that as well. So that is part of my question. A, what's your positioning on energy at the moment, specifically energy? Uh, and B, are you doubling up? Because if you are long, which I'm assuming you are, because when we were 100, 110, that was where everyone thought we were going to end the year, 100, 110, and then gravitate up to higher levels in 2023 on the back of those supply concerns you just mentioned. You're being really challenged here with a $76 Brent. Yeah, no, I think so. I think there's been a lot of money that has been seeing this shift into commodities just for the past 12 months. And typically like flows, they all of a sudden, you know, the bell rings for them when all of a sudden, you know, things look almost the rosiest. So oil prices are 110, $120 a barrel. Everybody's talking about, um, you know, Fed's going to go to 5% on a terminal rate, maybe even higher. And then all of a sudden you get that money flows out of tech into things like oil companies, energy stocks. Now, I'll say this, in the, in the short run, I still think that's a great call. I still think you have to be long uh, energy for the next several years. I'm a big believer that this is like a super cycle that we're about to come into. The question is, what, when does the super cycle, when did it start? And even during any cycles, there's gonna be periods of big drawdowns. So I think actually we're in a, in a period now which we are starting to see the first leg of the drawdown. The question is how deep that drawdown is. So Brent, somewhere around 75, could it go to 65? Sure, obviously if you look at the forecast for 23 and where global growth is, you can see that so lower. So this is a shakeout and, 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 and again, I asked the question, what do our viewers, and look, Goldman's, I spoke to Jeff Curry last week. Yeah, it's still going up. It's still going to be the same issues you mentioned next year as well. But what do you do when the market is going down, the dollar's going down, so commodities should look better, but the commodities are going down in tandem with the dollar as well. And we're seeing data from the EIA this week and others saying, yeah, actually, we've got a hell of a lot of gasoline supplies. We've got a hell of a lot more distillates than we thought we had. You're being challenged left, right and centre. What should you do now? I still think you buy. I think you have to position, though, for a longer period of time. The duration is going to be important. So if you're trying to look for the trade, if you're the hot... Uh, Wall Street energy trader on the street, and you have a big book uh, of Brent futures for December 2022. Uh, they're about to expire. You're probably not feeling very good today, especially if you you know put those contracts on $10 higher. I mean, oil's been down, I think, 20% somewhere in the last month. Oh, so yeah. there's no doubt it's a huge drawdown. Uh, you know, energy stocks, which you know is is a big weight in our portfolio. It's like 70% of our holdings is in energy names and sort of these small wow. producers. But the key you gotta remember on some of these companies, that, well, there's two factors I look at. One, uh, I think OPEC and OPEC Plus is in a, in, still in a different position they were last five years, right? Five years ago, seven years ago, everyone's talking about shale and how the swing producer is the US, you know, that's gone. So OPEC's in charge. But, and OPEX have been making maneuvers, obviously, to David, keep prices they, they, They're not really letting me have another question, but I'm going to squeeze. I don't think OPEC is in charge at this moment, because if they were, we'd be 100 bucks plus as well. Um, there was another uh, um, speculator out there, Long Hedge Fund, who says when the market's going against him, he turns around, and I won't name names, but he turns around and says, the market is not working, there's something wrong with the mechanism. I think the market's working beautifully as well. Is, there, is the oil market broken, or is it just working beautifully? I think it's, it's, it's in between. Right. Uh, it's not uh, beautiful because I think liquidity is low. So that's one thing. 
Uh, but two, I do still think OPEC's in charge. I think they're trying to have this like fine balance between you know, their political agenda and their economic agenda. So that's a really tough call. So meaning if you really want to, OPEC could take more barrels off the market, get oil Brent to $80, $85, I think very quickly. Uh, but I think they're also thinking, you know, 2023 is gonna be a challenging year for demand, at least early parts as China reopening. Yeah, they're reopening, but what does their global growth look like? What does world growth look like? So they're, they're also trying to be, um, you know, very agile in terms of their position. Now, if things start to improve, uh, I think you're going to see oil prices go up uh, very much and maybe even see triple digits into 2023. Personally, I don't expect that until perhaps near uh, summer or even fall. Uh, I think the first half is going to be very, very, very challenging. So in this very short run, I'm saying I think oil prices are going to stay in this lower band. David, you're going to stay with us, so we'll come back. We'll pick up on the conversation in just a moment. Um, something else I need to point out to you on a programming note. We will hear from the chairman and CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, later today. Don't miss out on that first on CNBC interview at 2100 Central European time. Uh, deal denied. America's FTC sues to block Microsoft's blockbuster takeover of Activision Blizzard. We'll have that story. Well, the, the strange thing about this podcast tease that we do now is we've we've done half the podcast with David, but we don't know what's going to be in the podcast with the next chat we have with David. So you're just going to have to listen to the Squat Box podcast. It is available wherever you get your pods. Do you call them pods? Well, we'll find out. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has sued to block Microsoft's $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard, laying the groundwork for a showdown in court. In a statement, the FTC said the takeover would harm competition in high-performance gaming consoles by denying or degrading rivals' access to popular content. Microsoft says even if the deal goes ahead, it wouldn't be the global leader still. In gaming. Now, attorney and uh, company president Brad Smith said that while he had given peace a chance, he looks for. Sounds like uh, um, John Lennon's name. It yeah. does. All I'm saying. All I'm saying is give yeah. peace a chance. Anyway, he looks forward to presenting Microsoft's case in court. Uh, the U.S. House Financial Services Committee is ready to subpoena the FTX co-founder Sam Bankman-Fried if he does not answer. Uh, appear to answer questions about the company's collapse next week. Uh, this according to the committee's chair, Maxine Waters, who told Reuters that she made it clear to Bankman-Fried he will need to cooperate. He has not been charged with any crime. But at the moment, he seems very, very happy to talk to anyone, anyone who wants to interview him, apart from Maxine Waters. Interesting. Uh, the US SEC has issued new guidance for public companies to disclose risks related to the crypto industry. According to the new rules, businesses may have to share whether they have any material exposure to firms that have gone bankrupt. Regulators are bracing themselves for further fallout from the collapse of major crypto players, including 
FTX and BlockFi. Um, let's go back to David Newhouser then, the CIO of uh, Livermore. Uh, David, with most asset classes, um, as the price drops, people get more interested and think, well, there must be an opportunity to step in here and buy something with intrinsic value. It will recover at some stage. And then we've got cryptocurrencies. And uh, I don't know if we can put up a board, just have a look at the latest prices. But BTC was down through 17,000. Yesterday, we've had something of a rebound here. Um, Two questions, really. Is there any point at which you step in and buy? And the second point is, what does FTX and all of the crypto-related trouble tell us, if anything, about the environment that we're in and how we need to negotiate uh, particular asset classes going forward? Yeah, so that's a big, big question. Big question. Um, you know, on crypto, like for me, I never had any interest in it. Uh, something a bit over my head when I initially saw it. Hey, uh, just let me tell you, you're a very, very <laughs> smart man. I, I know that, David, and whether I agree or disagree on certain assets, you are an incredibly smart man. You don't understand crypto. No. My, my, my understanding is there's many understandings of crypto. What people, everyone I know, including some friends of mine who have made a fortune even in crypto. Good for them. But the issue is why did they buy it? Thank you. Uh, what's their duration? And then what are they doing today? <laughs> Right? So a lot of those people tend to be on the younger side, right? That's the thing. They've been more, you know, speculating early on and then took advantage of speculation, COVID, free money. And then all of a sudden you saw retail, general public, Wall Street, of course, follows last, crypto explodes. And now we're seeing crypto, um, you know, crypto implode, right? So where are we today after a year of implosion where we've seen crypto down 60, 70%, we've seen a number of these firms and the, the, the bigger sort of trading firms in the business go out of business. We've seen how opaque uh, the crypto platforms really are and some of the shady characters uh, behind it. So that shows everything I thought and, for, and was feared in crypto was true. Uh, from a fund standpoint, our hedge fund had some short positions in crypto, some of the specific equity companies about six months ago, things like Coinbase, which we made money on this year being short, uh, MicroStrategy, which I both made money and lost money on being short, um, and some others. But I've, I've stayed away from the underlying Bitcoin because one, it's very volatile, which is another reason why I thought it, it's gonna never be a currency. Uh, and two, I just purely don't understand you know, it depends on what your thesis is on Bitcoin. Perhaps it's too early still, as a lot of people will say, oh, this is a pullback, it's early in the technology. And perhaps this, you know, this is just, uh, has no intrinsic value at all, and there's no reason to own it whatsoever. Do, do silver and gold benefit from what's happening in the crypto space, or do you feel that this is disconnected and more to do with inflation and macro generally? No, 100%, Jeff, and 100. And the reason why I say that is we've been gold bulls now also for the last few years. Uh, and I've been, and that's been frustrating. <laughs> it's been frustrating and I've taken out of the chin as well because you know a lot of the people that I just described who even I know who were making fortunes on crypto were looking at me kind of saying, I told you, you know, you're a boomer, David. You know, <laughs> you're investing in things that, that you, know, you don't understand. Uh, that's not the way you invest. That's not the way you, you hold uh, value as a store of value. And I told them still, like, I'm, I'm still in it. Gold on the year is now flat, um, $1,800 an ounce. Silver's, you know, is, is still down, but uh, it's starting to get much better. And I think it's almost showing 
uh, it's it's metal, so to speak, and yeah. uh, in both terms, in, in that it's it's the go-to asset when things get uh, very difficult. Um, okay, uh, luxury. You're clearly a man who likes a bit of luxury as well. Um, it's LVMH, Burberry, Ferrari, Hermes as well. Why are they a port in the storm at the moment? Yeah. So again, another great question. I, I look at you know. So I'm a, mac, a micro investor, right? Hedge funds are always trying to make, uh, capture alpha, trying to capture returns. Historically, over the past six years, Livermore has been around. We have somewhere near mid-teens uh, annualized growth, but it is extremely lumpy because I take concentrated bets in sectors and, and you know, smaller companies. So you know, we have, again, you know, energy portfolio, gold, a uh, couple companies, but these are very specific in nature. What people find odd with me a bit is that I'll invest in sort of these hard assets, things trading at you know two times cash flow, you know, you know, point six times book or something like that. And on the flip side, I do like things like in luxury because I think it's something that one of the aspects of the global economy and we know this is there's this mismatch between the consumer, right? We have the very wealthy and then we have uh, a middle income to lower income that's also suffering the most from inflation. The wealthy, uh, you know, they see inflation. Uh, I don't think they feel it as severe um, until their, their uh, portfolio, I'll say, of whatever they're deriving their revenues and wealth from uh, really gets uh, capitulated. So today I still think luxury is, is a place okay. to be. And you own all of those four names I mentioned, Ferrari, Burberry, LVMH, and MS. As a fund, we don't. Uh, personally, I own some of those names, I'll say. Okay. Uh, Livermore, I am looking at perhaps starting a vehicle which has only luxury in it. Interesting. So we have our sort of, you know, fund that's, you know, uh, opportunistic, special situations. And on the other side, I'm also thinking there could be a, a so luxury So that vehicle is going to be a Ferrari rather than Aston Martin because since IPO, they're completely uh, different. Yeah. Yeah. See what I did there. Okay, great. Um, just very quickly as well, if you're looking at 0.6 price to book, I can, I can sell you some European banks that are trading <laughs> cheaper than that. I can assure you <laughs> there's plenty out there. David, we've got to let you go, but nice to see you. Sorry, Karen wasn't around to chat as well. I know that she had some good questions for you, but uh, we'll see you again soon. And I guess it's that time of year we start wishing people happy Christmas. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. David, lovely to see you. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Happy, happy holidays to you both. Yeah, David, you who is the CIO of Livermore. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.